Well, that led to one of my big rules of marketing, that yeah. customers always get it. It's just that they don't always buy it. I do think that we have a problem in modern corporations that metrics have come to mean too much. They've come to almost imply moral reality. From Orion X, this is The Marketing Podcast. Marketing has transformed in significant ways. More technology, more data, more social, more blending of arts and sciences, more integrated with every other function, and ultimately more critical to the organization. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Garnett as they discuss news and happenings in the world of marketing, from the boardroom to customer programs. Hello, everyone. This is Shaheen Khan, Marketing Podcast with Doug Garnett, episode number 35, if my count is right. How are you, Doug? I'm doing well, Shaheen. Excellent, excellent. So let's get to it, eh? The cart and the cartoon. Well, a cartoon is kind of full this week. We're going we're gonna to look at two of them. But they're kind of on the same topic, so. Double feature. <laughs> yeah, double feature. Here we are, back to back. <laughs> or a double header, you know, if you want to take a break in the middle between them and stretch. It'd be just uh-huh. So the first one has a boardroom with a guy presenting, and he has a stick, and he has graphs on the wall. And the first graph says, management's opinion of our product, and it is soaring to the heavens. You know, the classic <laughs> graph that's always on the increase, you know, a few small decreases, but not much. First one's in is management's opinion of the product. The second one is the customer's opinion of our product, and it's flatlined. <laughs> it's flatlined in the middle. It is, you know, McCoy is not bringing this one back from the dead. That's just no no pulse. No <laughs> pulse. It's it's flatline. I laughed because it's kind of sometimes so true. And of course, having done quite a bit of market research, often I was the one coming back and saying, yeah, well, uh, nobody likes it, you know, or they're not interested in it or whatever. And it's tough because in companies, we get pretty enamored of our products because we worked hard on them. So we should, you know, we should. Be That's right. That's now. right. But we have to watch out for that customer opinion. It's going to, if it flatlines, we're in trouble. So besides the confirmation bias, mm-hmm. when I saw that, what it reminded me of was we used to do surveys of employee satisfactions, customer satisfaction, all of that, and really do a good job. It was like people spend money and they did it properly. And I remember occasionally some manager would say when the results were not good, mm-hmm. some manager said, well, they just don't get it. <laughs> Right. And and that's really where my comment came from that they get it, they don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is a problem. I mean, I've I've heard that kind of comment very often from companies. And you know, I mean I even did research once for uh, direct TV where the marketer in the back was frustrated because, you know, this is before direct TV really had their full act together. And the marketer is frustrated and said, you know, she's like, But but you guys just aren't presenting it right, you know, as if she had this magic. So so after three focus groups, we let her go into the fourth one and present it, and people had the same exact reaction, which was, I don't get it. Why should I buy this? You know. <laughs> and in fact, we learned that that was an accurate understanding, and then DirecTV brought out their NFL Sunday ticket, which was the key in what the customers in those groups were asking for, and that was the key to their success. And they, you know, they eventually heard what we were hearing and did something about it. But my God, that manager was so pissed. Oh boy, we were just, just not doing it right. Yeah. Oh yeah, we're just not doing it right. Yeah. If we just had more enthusiasm as we presented it to the focus groups, they would just love it. That was pretty wrong. Well, that led to one of my big rules of marketing, that customers always get it. It's just that they don't always buy it, and that's the problem. 
All right. So we have another cartoon, I understand. Well, we had to keep with graphs that are soaring to the sky. <laughs> right. So the second cartoon has a, and yes, we'll go for the gender here, has a male CEO in an office in a dark suit and tie, and there's a woman presenting to him. And right beside his desk, there's this chart that's soaring to the heavens. And he says to the woman, no, those are happiness metrics, not financial. I thought you <laughs> knew that. <laughs> So what did this make you think of? Oh, it's, uh, well, this is the bias of how I feel must be how we're doing. And we all know those can be very different things. And I've worked with a fair number of CEOs that were so confident in their happiness that they were, you know, they missed really critical things that were going on around. Them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this made me, along these lines, made me think of two things. One is the pressure, the desire to spin your numbers such mm -hmm. that they actually cause happiness, whether or not that's justified. But my other feeling was, why correlate happiness and financial results as if they are necessarily at odds? Like happiness should really be about pursuit of truth and insight and understanding. So I thought that that was a bit of an assumption there that was triggering me anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, mean, I agree with that. I mean, you know, fundamentally, happiness ought to be about more than how your metrics are doing this week. But yeah, I, really. You know, yeah. I do think that we have a problem in modern corporations that metrics have come to mean too much and that they've come to, as I write in the book, actually, they come to almost imply moral reality for the person, especially those kind of metrics that are connected to things that we might see a little bit morally, depending on your cultural background. So in the U.S., if you come from the U.S. and you came out of a you know, Protestant work ethic background, then a metric of productivity is almost a personal statement, you know? You know, not everybody has that, fortunately. Or a metric about use of time, you know, wasted time versus effective time. Those things all almost come down to being very personal. And if you get docked, they're a real personal attack. So I'm actually not surprised to see metrics and happiness begin to merge a bit. Because mm -hmm. we kind of we we get really fuzzy about those boundaries, and I think sometimes it's intentional. I think sometimes that there are people in management who like the additional power they feel like it gives them to not only say, "Hey, you missed your metric," but continue on with, "So you're a bad person." Uh -huh. I mean, it's pretty harsh, and you know, of course, they love to say that, but that's the implication, and I think it's hard sometimes for people to distinguish between uh, I missed the metric and I'm a bad person. Well, if you've used the metrics to set expectations with others, so now you're on the hook and then you're going to cause everybody else to be on the hook. And that definitely impacts your happiness and everybody involved. And you could argue, well, maybe you should not have set those expectations, but then people don't know how to decide whether something was done or not. They kind of need something numerical to assess that. And there lies really most of the problem because you could get the right numbers that don't indicate the right thing. And you've had examples of that that we talked in the last episode and we should again in this one. So for sure, yeah. And I think it's it's difficult too because what we're trying to do in business is hit goals and deliver a good whole result, right? Whatever that whole thing is, we need we want to deliver that. Metrics can only measure a tiny portion of that whole result. I mean, it's just a fact of numbers. Numbers cannot measure everything and no collection of numbers can measure that. I mean, how do you measure for a company whether you are treating employees well, whatever well means, you know? 
well, you can't, I mean, I know companies invent measures and they drive me crazy because they end up being bullshit because, oh, did I say that? Um, <laughs> they end up being bullshit because they eventually don't mean a thing. Well, the problem is that even when they do mean something very valid, mm-hmm. they say nothing about sustainability. They say nothing about, did you just paint yourself in a corner that is going to hurt you two and a half years from now? They lack a lot of the contextual longer term attributes because they're just complex as you know the title of your book says mm-hmm. and that is another thing that is really hard with metrics is that you could be very happy for now but then not even know that you just caused a whole bunch of quote unhappiness <laughs> <laughs> well i mean back to the, let's just look at the biggest metric of them all i just read a book called the shareholder value myth and it was really interesting when you take the idea of companies should deliver good shareholder value and if you turn that around and say okay good what's defined shareholder value uh it gets really pardon me it's a complex truth yeah. because you have to think about over what period of time what's the value your shareholder once every shareholder tends to have a different idea about what a good value for their you know prop is no shareholder value for a stock is a real value until somebody sells their shares so it's it's basically funny money until you sell so all of a sudden you're in this really weird area where you have a metric that feels strong but the minute you critique it and look at it it kind of evaporates into complexity and it's not that it truly evaporates but you realize that a focus on shareholder value is really kind of silly you know, right, because right. you can't decide what it is and you can't determine what it is. Well, which is why most people don't get that far. They just focus on revenue, profits, margin, EBITDA, and they're fine. And those are valid in the sense that you can measure them and they do represent economic health but they really say little about the future sometimes. Right. Well, and shareholder value also says a little about the future. But in a way, if you manage today well, which means planning that there's got to be a future, according to the mm-hmm. measures you mentioned, you generally arrive at better shareholder value. You know, it's one of those funny places, I think, where when you focus on shareholder value, you don't deliver the best shareholder value. <laughs> because there's a lot of ways to gain shareholder value. Well, that's right. That's right. That's what I was saying last time. You want it to be what gets measured gets done. In fact, what you get is what gets measured gets gained. Right. Yeah. So we mentioned double feature, Uh which sort of was a very opportune sequence of words. It was. There was an article in The Economist that was talking about the length of the movies and how that has changed. And you pointed that out to me. That was a subject of a tweet Mm -hmm. stream. Take us through what that article was and the salient points, perhaps. As we start, what I will say is I don't know that we're going to be able to deliver any clear, absolute answers. However, what struck me is this is a really good discussion for us to have because it's about marketing and it's about metrics and it's about everything. So essentially, The Economist came out with an article which is headlined, Why Films Have Become So Ridiculously Long, which, of course, that title attracts a lot of people because a lot of us are wondering that. And it shows uh, they went off and looked at, what was it, 100,000? movies in IMDb back to 1930, and they have averaged them and then isolated what they call the most popular ones from the least popular ones. And they show that 
that the trend for most popular films all along was that they were longer than the other ones. And then they showed that the trend for most popular films has just been skyrocketing over the last five years. And it's gotten way, way, way up there. The average length is over 140 minutes for uh, popular films as of 2022. Interestingly, looking at the graph, it looks like it went up until the early 60s, then kind of crashed, and then in the 90s came back up to about where it was in the 60s, uh, then continued on. But man... Mm. I know we go to look at a film these days and streaming and we check the length because we have to debate whether we have to hit boomer bedtime or not. <laughs> now, that's what you call it when you go to bed early, boomer bedtime. So. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, Barbenheimer caused that to be a topic again. And of course it did so well. Yep. So the question really is why? Because when movies are longer, you're not charging customers according to minute mm -hmm. so you in fact may lose some ticket sales except that these super long movies also do extremely well in box office so somehow it doesn't hurt the revenue it seems so what's going on there yeah i don't know i think the picture is in fact murky and i don't think that we would find any absolute causes for this i responded to the post that i picked up on it with a uh, you know let's be careful about causation here yes that i do not think that this can be read as saying long movies are more popular mm. except by accident right i mean there are things that could make those long movies more popular like maybe they invest more in it. maybe the theater are willing to allow the movie to be longer if there's already an audience like there is for the you know Marvel movies or for Star Wars. You right. know, and the studios are very risk averse in my experience. And you know, when you look around, they, I mean, God, some days they're just running around copying each other. Right. One of my jokes is the, you know, the old thing about, you know, with the studio exec and he's being pitched by a writer and the writer says, well, it's just going to be like Barbie, except it features this guy in a, in a brown suit and he descends <laughs> to Hades. But that's, that's kind of the way Hollywood works. I've been around people who believe that that's a valid way to think about creativity. And uh, it's weird, but the studios are conservative because it is a high risk business. Hmm. So they like those conservative things. So it may be an accident that they're getting along in the last few years. Hmm. So one recurring aspect of movies has, of course, been competing with other forms of entertainment, mm -hmm. primarily the TV or whatever screen you have in the house. And you could argue that if I'm going to get you out of the house, I need something substantive to do that. So a really long, epic movie could do it. And then because it's long, I've got time to tell the story. I've got latitude to get a really good director and let them go wild and do what they really want to do. And it becomes like a virtuous circle that causes a good movie to happen. That's like one interpretation. I think that's possible sometimes. So. When we talk about streaming, then that became more complicated. It always does because, you know, streaming, you know, do I really need those? Here's what I thought about with streaming, which is we know this bump lately started in 2018, which is really when the streaming, most aggressive streaming competition started. And streamers have just been dumping money into content for the last five or six years. And yeah. really dumping it in big time, hoping to 
capture the streaming mm-hmm. market, right? And that's what they all want is to capture it. So you've got HBO and you've got Disney and you've got Amazon mm-hmm. and you've got Apple mm-hmm. and you've got Netflix. You know, they're all just dumping money into new content. There's a lot of us who don't think that that's sustainable. But I could see here that a streamers could say, well, we're going to go hire the best directors and that'll be what helps us get our foothold. And what's a director? How do you capture a good director? Tell them they can make it as long as they want it. You know, director, yeah. what's the constant director bitch all the way back to childhood? Oh, they cut my movie. The cutting all board, the yeah. Parts, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the good stuff's on the cutting room floor. Yeah. So I think it's possible that what we're seeing is heavily influenced by streaming, especially since this graph includes the pandemic. Ah, right. Right. When people are at home anyway, and streamers wanted to capture them during that time. So and in fact, actually, now that I think about it, and this just came up, I wonder even if the fact that 22 is high isn't classic time delay yes also there was a pent-up demand to get out mm-hmm. and barbenheimer provided that suddenly you had the reason to go and you kind of enjoyed it etc right mm-hmm. absolutely i think the marketing question for me is this article talks about how important this is competing with tv for movie theaters and actually that you know that goes back into the 60s as well so right the competition between theaters and tv has been there all along and we have a new version of it now that there's all this streaming content coming out but they talk about these you know massive shows will capture people get them off their couches and into the theater but then i think i've talked with students quite a bit about this i think that theaters are missing it here i think that there's a lot of other marketing opportunity if a theater just looks and says, wait a minute, what are my strengths and how can I leverage those strengths to get people into the theater? I wonder about watching streaming shows in theaters, you know, and especially now that they're being released, as you were saying, on a weekly basis, right, where they're stretching them out. Imagine if you'd watched the final episode of Succession in a theater with a hundred other people. Might have been pretty fun, you know? Mm. Uh, And so theaters, what they're not doing is finding clever ways to use both the size of their venue so that you can watch things with other people, as well as the sound and presentation quality of the studio. Remember re-releases? I mean, we grew up with re-releases, you know? Love those. Yes. Sound of Music is back. Oh, well, we better go see it. Lawrence of Arabia I did in New York, and it was excellent. And Mm -hmm. 70 millimeters, the whole bet, yeah. I even think they re-released Star Wars stuff in the 80s. I think they were still doing re-releases in theaters in the 1980s. I think so, yeah. Yeah. But now you don't even see that. So I feel kind of like the theaters are not being very clever, and there's probably good reason for it. So who knows what's going on with them. But you know, looking at it from the outside, it just seems to me I'm not seeing enough adventurous stuff on the horizon from the theaters. But So one other thing that this article pointed out to me, highlighted to me, was that they took the IMDB database and Mm -hmm. just went to town and they looked at what it had. And I think really one big conclusion is that when you look at a database like that, what you get out of it is a lot of good discussion. Mm -hmm. What you don't get out of it is a conclusive proof of anything. Maybe you do and you're lucky to do. But generally, if you know, don't look at that as the definitive thing. It gives you fodder to discuss things. And hopefully it's not 
distracting you from the real discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, you know, that's what I've started doing in my classes. You know, when we look at a table, I have to really work hard because, you know, as business students, they're kind of trained to mm. give you an answer. I don't want an answer. It's a table. And so I demand that they tell me what questions we should ask. You right. know, it's a table. Tell me what questions we should ask. So, yeah, I think as a lesson about big data from this, you know, they looked at 100,000 feature films. So what questions should we ask? And there's a lot of questions here that could be asked about this. You know, to what degree are these lengths responding to customer interest, audience interest? And to what degree are these responding to movie theater interest? And to what degree are they responding to studio interest and director interest or even the powerful actors who have some influence in this? You know, there's all those factors going around. And so any quick jump to causality is wrong. You're asking for it, really. You're asking are. for yeah. it. Yeah, you have yeah. to look at it and say, okay, I can observe this, but I could argue that the competition with TV was effective here, but I think this is a result of something else. And maybe that, you know, it's a really thick, murky reality. In the book, I kind of say basically, if you look at numbers and they give you a clean, easy answer, be scared. Right. That's you right. Know? That's right. Reality is messy. And so it should be a bit messy. So let's talk complexity again, because we started the discussion last time and wanted to continue. And metrics are part and parcel of complexity for all the reasons we were just talking about. And you had some good anecdotes, and I've had a chance to read a few more pages of the book you're writing. Mm -hmm. So please take us through that. Okay. Well, and just to catch everybody up, in our last episode, we talked about emergence, which is where things kind of emerge as you go. And one of the things that emerges in societies and in companies and all sorts of places is self-organization. And mm -hmm. you see it that, you know, flocks of starlings self-organize, flocks of geese seem to self-organize, and people self-organize. And so it leads to this question that we talked about last time about when as marketers, can we rely on self-organization, especially within in our company and you know how can we rely on that for what purpose well what happens with self-organization is it should make things happen simpler better more effective because what you you know you run into a problem with complicated systems where you start making rules and you have these huge long lists of rules and then you start making rules about the rules and then you make rules about the rules rules and then you're lost because you cannot manage it it becomes overweight at the top and it falls over and usually that indicates you should be relying somehow on complexity. So anyway, that's a long intro to, that's kind of what we talked about last time. And you had mentioned we ought to look at metrics in, uh, yeah. <laughs> in this because it does raise things. So you start looking around and say, okay, where are there self-organizational units that we can rely on in marketing? And I think one of the really interesting ones to look at is at the store level. To what degree can we allow stores to be self-organizing and rely on the store to take care of a lot of what things might have to be in rules otherwise, because right now retail stores are just bombarded with rules from headquarters and yeah. uh, orders about how to do everything to the point where people in retail will tell you that they're not supposed to do the things that they know they should do. Well, what are these things? I mean, I can see, for example, headquarters saying, just to kind of illustrate the point that, and, and because you use the coffee shop, I'll use that, is that, hey, we're a coffee shop. Let's just like not sell like pizza, right? right? And that would be like, keep 
consistent with the identity of the shop. Don't go repaint the store red if our color is like purple. Right. I can get that. But- Absolutely. And you can do that pretty easily by saying, hey, here's our brand guidelines. You know, you shop, your job is you got to be brand. You know, you're right. on brand. Right. Okay, we'll leave it at that. I can see them say that, but I think where you're going perhaps is that they are trying to meddle in affairs that are not part of identity or consistency of service, and if anything, gets in the way of that. And they're issues that they have no real insight into. But, you know, I mean, actually, brand is an interesting place to start because I talk about the brand policing companies, Mm -hmm. you know, that there's a brand police and they run around with their idea of what the brand is. But, you know, brands are owned by the customer. So our role in it is not to violate what the customer expects. But I think customers have a much more robust sense of a brand than a lot of the brand police do. Brand police are like, oh, we can't do that. Customers are like, it's just fine. Well, you know, in the B2B world, as you recall from old times, you occasionally get the sales office or the sales you know, rep who just need something. You know, they mean no harm. They just have a need mm-hmm. and they can't get it fulfilled through headquarters. So they just take it upon themselves to go get it done. And they just make do with what they have and how they, you know, they're not graphic designers. They're not, you know, writers. They throw it together and it like looks nothing like it's supposed to. And that can really hurt the brand. It can hurt, it can cause the customer to question the validity and quality of the document. So that happens like that. And then you do want them to have a different process, you know? Right. You know, it's complexity. The beauty of complexity is it all depends on the circumstances and the situation. Right. And we have to figure out how to manage those everywhere. You know, if we're doing self-organization, in a way, think about it. It's a little bit like jazz improvisation. If you do jazz improvisation, you're doing it within a chord structure, a melody. You've got a ton of structure around it. And in fact, Thelonious Monk was known for getting really upset when musicians would just wander outside of that and play whatever they want. He really wanted them to be melodic within that structure. And it Mm -hmm. made for really great music. So I think in a sense, it's like that. You're an independent, a self-organized piece within this overall structure. The question kind of becomes what are these boundaries? Should we talk about Starbucks a little bit here? Because I think it's a really interesting... We we should. Yeah, I mentioned coffee and of course you go... (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm ready for more caffeine, so... uh, Well, those who know Starbucks know that when it started, Howard Schultz, who was CEO of Starbucks and the founder of the modern Starbucks, was very clear that baristas were a key part of building Starbucks. And he went well out of his way to support the baristas and to listen to the baristas. And what he saw was that each barista interaction helped the company achieve its mission, you know, one step further. Because they were bringing these entirely new drinks to market that nobody really knew about. And so baristas played this critical role in helping those get to market. And so Schultz was very, very positive about them and did a lot of things to help them. And I think, you know, the number I I picked up was that whereas most retailers and fast food chains see 150 to 400% turnover, Starbucks barista turnover at the time was 60%. I mean, that's really almost miraculous. So they went out of their way. They did a lot of really good things. What's strange is that, you know, you fast forward and you find out here in starting in you know, 2017, 2018, Starbucks stores are unionizing. Baristas are frustrated. And they talk about, here's a quote from one, says, it sapped just about every last ounce of my energy to know that I'm now a hindrance to the Starbucks agenda. And, you know, you think, whoa, what happened here? One point. They were core to the goal, and at one point they aren't. And I think, 
I bring it up because I think this was a failure around self-organization. I think that perhaps Schultz saw the barista clearly, but didn't see the store as a core unit. And they, mm. you know, at least however it happened, Starbucks did not maintain the store as a self-organized mm. unit. And they did what I'm beginning to see as typical in metrics, which is they used, pardon me, this is my new phrase, micrometrics to micrometrics. <laughs> you know? They split the metrics up and started demanding that stores hit kind of absurd low-level metrics that corporate should stay the heck out of. But it's a way of micromanaging. You know, that's fundamentally what it is. We want people to do things just exactly the way that we would you yeah. know, we're doing it here at headquarters. And it backfired. And now they have all sorts of barista problems. You made another good point in a page I was reading where you advocated to separate output from outcome. Yeah, that's one of the things that, you know, and I have a friend who he works at the World Bank. And so he's worked with the international organizations and he works according to a thing called theory of change. And within some theory of change structures, you could separate output, which are kind of those measured little results from outcome. Because the reality is, you know, what's Starbucks after? They want happy customers. They want profit at the store. You know, they want basic fundamentals like that. And unfortunately, they tend to try to organize metrics around output. And in this case, the output I saw was that there's a lot of complaint about how tightly stores are measured on exactly how much time it takes every car to go through the drive-thru. Right. And I could see, I don't think that's related to outcome. That certainly is an output. Useful to know, and I don't have any problem that you want to know that, but is it really connected to brand satisfaction? I mean, I can imagine how it goes because some people call up and say, ah, oh, it took me forever in the drive-thru. And no, I'd never do that. But, you know, maybe they say that. Mm. But as a company, you have to say, okay, I'm sorry, but does it matter? You know, is it going to really radically affect their... Well, that is a micrometric, like you said, is like, let me zoom in on this one thing and miss the bigger picture here. In agreement with you, the other thing that I'm observing, certainly in the B2B world, is that like you had in your paper, the inputs are well-defined and you can measure them because you control them. You put them in there and you can observe what else is in there, maybe. It can get complex, but by and large, you're okay. And then there's an activity that you can again control. You're performing that activity. And then you have output that comes out of that activity that you can also measure. Mm-hmm. Now, to translate that to some kind of a desirable outcome is when things can be really difficult. Yes. So you run an ad, I can anticipate impressions, no problem. In fact, the system tells me. I could even anticipate clicks. I can even do that. After that, it's not so predictable, right? No. It may or may not. And if you're selling a product that has a nine-month sales cycle, then by the time that sale happens or doesn't happen, you will have touched or not touched the customer eight, 10, 20 more times. And attribution becomes really an issue. And now you have this just a mix of data that you have to interpret. And if you're going to really just say it was that thing that we did that caused all of this, is like you're asking for it. Well, you are. I think what you know, one of the ideas in complexity is there are times when what causes something to happen is an accumulation of things that are so small they're never going to be measurable. Mm-hmm. You know? And I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things we miss in the metric culture of, of today is that there are times. So I mean, take advertising, right? Advertising effect is tiny in a way. Each interaction with an ad that somebody has is just a little blip. You know, it's just a little blip. But you have enough of those over a period of time and all of a sudden now you've got a person that acts but 
but we can't track any of that. We can't know exactly what happened for that individual or exactly how it is that individual moved into action. Just you can't do that. So you have to be able to figure out when you're up against these situations, which are, you know, you need millions of tiny transactions and the result is incredible. And I bring that up because I think that's what Howard Schultz did originally, you know, mm-hmm. by empowering the baristas, you've got each barista impact is tiny. You know, mm-hmm. one person, I see. one person, you're not going to measure it. But the accumulated value of that made Starbucks grow from, I think it was like 300 million in 1987 to 20 billion today. Yeah, I it's know. a behemoth. I wouldn't, mind, yeah. I wouldn't mind that growth myself, you know. Yes, so yes, it yes. It really yes. is a behemoth. So it, it grew very rapidly. And mm-hmm. it did so because it accumulated all those values. And national advertising works that way too. And it's hard for companies because I know we like to trust things we can see, but some things we can't see that we have to figure out how to trust them anyway. What is interesting is that it's still one of the finest companies out there. It's Absolutely. pretty enlightened. Mm-hmm. It has its act together. The products are good. All of mm-hmm. that is good. So the fact that even they are having some complexity that they have to deal with is indicative of how difficult it is to eliminate it. It is. And I think here, I suspect that what Starbucks is suffering from is, I call it creeping managerialism, You know, where traditional, just kind of true traditional practices slip in a little bit at a time. And then at some point you poke your head up and say, well, wait a minute, what are we doing? Mm. And I, you know, I think it's all changeable for them, but I think it would start with going back to the store and saying, all right, each store you're on a profit plan and you, you guys are a team and you achieve that and you get bonuses and the like, and we're not going to micromanage drive through wait time because right. that's absurd. Yeah. I, I like that. I like that. Like don't repaint the store yeah. different brand colors, but go get it done any way you can. Yeah. And if you need something, call us because we'll try to help you out. Right. And if we learn something, we will. I mean, this reminds me of the Tom Peters story of Sam Walton in the early days of Walmart, that he would personally visit every store once a year. And even when they had like 400 and some stores, he would manage to do it. And part of the reason was to see what they're doing here that could be instituted elsewhere. And the good ideas to be shared so there are definitely things like that that you want to do all right good stuff another fun episode thank you thanks to our listeners glad you were with us and write comment like share all of that so Set thanks for fireworks that. anything you want <laughs> that's right all right thank you doug thank you all everybody right. see you that's it for this episode of the marketing podcast every episode is posted on orionx.net and shared on social media Use the comments section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The Marketing Podcast is a production of Orion X. Thank you for listening.